Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another podcast, this year featuring Shizmed 2017. And today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Judd Hollander. He is Associate Dean for Strategic Health Initiatives at the Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Jefferson Health. The topic that he's going to be speaking to, building value-based care business models through a telehealth program. And I was just talking offline before we got started here uh, with Judd about uh, telehealth, and I'm really intrigued about this topic. And I think there's lots of confusion and mysticism out there about this new program. Some people are aggressively early adopting and jumping in. Others are very nervous. A lot of people are waiting around wondering what to do next. But first of all, Dr. Hollander, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for the invite to the podcast. Thanks for the invite to the meeting. Happy to join you. The first question I have is a pretty obvious one. Tell us about, you know, what you're going to be talking about. Tell us about your topic and, you know, why you think this is timely and important for people at Chismet and our listeners to listen to know about as well. The most important reason why it's important is because I believe it's the future of healthcare. We, we like to talk about a shift from fee for service to value-based healthcare. We like to talk about consumerism uh, in, in healthcare. I, I think really the focus is way simpler than that. It's what's easy for the patients to get the care they need. And as you know, as we all do, you could go on your phone all day long and get all the information at your fingertips. You could buy anything you want just about any time of day without leaving your house. Yet when we do healthcare, we think about going to the doctor. There's no more absurd concept than going to the doctor. When you think about it, who goes to the doctor? It's people who are sick. Who are the people who are least likely to want to actually have to go someplace and feel like going someplace. It's people who are sick. We take people and do major surgery on them, and then we send them home with pain meds because they're in pain, and then we expect them to get in the car and drive 45 minutes to come back and say, hey, I feel okay. I think we're just not taking care of patients the way we should actually take care of patients, and at some point, patients are going to figure out there's a better system to have this happen. What we're actually trying to do at Jefferson is, figure out options that patients could have. They don't all need to get their care by telemedicine, but they shouldn't all need to have to go to the doctor to get their care. So really what we're trying to do is grow out personalized programs where the patients could decide what's the best way for them to get their care regardless of what their medical condition is. And I think that in a summary is the essence of what we're trying to do and where I personally believe the future of healthcare is gonna go. One of the things that uh, we also talked about offline before we began is I just had my first telemedicine visit personally about a month ago. And it's funny, you mentioned, I want to actually respond to a couple things before I drill deeper. One was the idea of easiness. And, you know, I, I had this minor thing. I was normally I'd have to go to the dermatologist, sign up, you know, go into the office, sit there for a long time, maybe around, you know, in my busy work day, I am running a company. It's really hard to get away. We're talking a couple hours out of my day for a five or 10 minute visit. And instead, I took a picture of the thing I was concerned about, sent it over to the telemedicine doc. Uh, I didn't perceive it as any particularly dangerous or, you know, worrisome. But and anyway, so they took a picture, set, had the telemedicine doc. It took By the time I got through filling out the paperwork, was probably less time than it would be at a normal doctor's office. This was on a Sunday. Five minutes later, they called me. I got a script five minutes later. Everything cleared up. I did the save the visit. It was amazing. And this was on a Sunday. Didn't have to drive down. Didn't have to miss work. Didn't have to make a big deal out of this. And that was just incredible. And you mentioned also the idea of consumerism in healthcare. And by the way, that doesn't mean I'm displacing my derm. I'm actually going to see my derm again for the more in-depth for skin cancer screenings and all those kinds of things. 
So I didn't displace them. But the consumerism, people want this clearly. And I also, last comment before I ask you a question is, I remember when the last time I had the flu really bad, I was too sick to go in. Uh, the drive over there is a half hour. And then what am I going to do and expose a bunch of other people to the flu? And it's just amazing, the opportunities with this. It's exciting. And uh, clearly, you've embraced this change. Help our listeners understand traditional business school. They talk about people that there's early early adopters, people that jump in really quickly. There's Then there's the early majority. Then there's sort of the middle. Then there's late majority and laggards. Uh, do you feel like we're still in the early adopter phase? People are still trying this out? Or is it already in the early majority? Do you have any sense of the share of how much telemedicine is happening currently? And you know where are we at this point in the continuum? No, I think we're still clearly in the early adopter stage. And I think we're there in two different ways. It's interesting because there's almost two different markets if you want to put the business hat on. There's the market to physicians and there's the market to patients. So there are, you know, you can look at all these numbers that make it seem like everybody in the world is doing telemedicine. That's clearly not true. There's a little bit of smoke and mirrors in the data that's out there. Um, and what, what at our shop, we've actually trained virtually every provider to be able to do visits with the patients. And as you go around, you see what you see in the rest of the world. A third of people think it's really cool. They want to get in. A third of people think, well, if I have to try it, I'll try it. And a third of people are totally reticent. And, you know, a large part of my job is to get the docs to kind of try it. Um, And most of them, it's kind of like if Mikey tries it, Mikey likes it. And they find a real use to it. But until you try it, you're totally intimidated by it. And we could come back and talk about, you know, some examples of the types of care you can render by telemedicine that you would never think you can actually render in advance from the provider side. But, But on the patient side, they don't know what it is. It's a little bit like urgent care centers in 1980. You know, they were referred to as doc in a box. They were frowned upon. It wasn't your own doctor. People didn't know what level of care there was, what the quality was. Telemedicine is so many different things right now that I don't think patients understand really what it is. So in our world, most but not all of our telemedicine that we refer to, you know, at Jeff, is actually a video call between a doctor and a patient. And and that's, you know, it mirrors what patients do in the office. But we have emergency physicians on call 24-7, 365. So like you did in your telemedicine call, you can actually see somebody on a Sunday or on a holiday or in the middle of the night. It's whatever's most convenient for you to be able to do that. But a patient, when they get sick, they don't think of something new, right? A patient, when they get sick of, they think of what they've been doing forever. So they're, they're really their first movement is to call their doctor. And in most of the world, if you call your doctor, you get an answering service, and at some point they call you back, and they sure don't actually really see you today. But you don't think, wow, there's a service where I could call and talk to somebody 24-7, 365, or I'm hurting badly today and I don't want to get in the car. I can just take the appointment I have scheduled with my surgeon and convert it to a telemedicine visit so I don't need to travel. And so I think we need to get the word out to patients about how they can do video visits. The other types, and there's multiple types of telemedicine, I mean, some people would call email telemedicine. You know, you email your doc and you get something back. Well, that might actually fit the definition, but I don't know. We do email. It's kind of commonplace. It's not what people think of, or certainly what we think of as a a great advance at this point, though it may be convenient for patients. 
The numbers that make it seem like telemedicine is everywhere include telephone calls, include email, include what's called store and forward. So you send your doc a picture by text or, you know, a secure website and they look at it and get back to you later. And and those numbers can be astronomical because, right, you call your doctor all the time, you email your doctor quite frequently. Then those numbers seem large. But in terms of actual video visits or what we would really consider telemedicine here, the numbers are lagging behind. You know, it's funny because in that particular case, for what it was, I didn't feel like video was necessary, but it was that was great because video would have, for me, I'm talking my own personal experience. Had I been something else, then I would have used video. And so it was great. And it was surprising to me that you had the option. You could do either one. So it's I totally can see the, the advantage of that. And, you know, you mentioned earlier the idea of um, patients coming back and even recognizing this as an opportunity because it's not the norm for sure. You'll find, I'm sure the early adopter patients just love it, want to talk about it. I know I've talked about it to everybody to listen. And most people that I talk to haven't really experienced it personally. Again, they may have heard about it, but they really haven't experienced it. You did mention a moment ago about the docs, and as typically that is always a big deal. And if people that have listened to my podcast know that convincing doctors to do things is always a big, real issue. We need to find the ones that support, get involved, and become visible promoters. And leadership is often a big deal. We talked to the Cleveland Clinic a number of times and talk about Dr. Toby Cosgrove, how, you know, when he sets the law, things happen. How, how has it been? Because you mentioned a third, a third, and a third. How has it been for you? Do you find that you have enough early adopters that are embracing this and sharing the, the good things they found? This is a top-down initiative. If this was Judd sitting in an office trying to convince people, it probably wouldn't work real well. But our CEO and president, a gentleman named Steve Clasco, this was part of his vision. And he hired myself and a bunch of other people to come over here and kickstart the program. This is front and center to our strategy going forward. We really, like I said at the beginning, believe that this is the future of medicine. So Steve actually had an incentive program for the physicians that required them effectively to try one visit a month for a year, right? 12 visits, 600 doctors, your numbers get up there reasonably fast. But what you've really done is given doctors an opportunity by telling them to do this so that they see they could use it. I'll give you just a couple examples because I don't know that we would have predicted where it's been most successful. So it's been really successful with asthmatic patients. And you might say, wow, asthmatics, I need to listen to their lungs. But then if you stop and think about it, they call their pulmonologist or their primary care doc all the time, and nobody's listening to their lungs. They're just talking to them. They're not even seeing them. And they're often prescribing meds if the patient isn't sick enough to go to the emergency department. So now I can see that patient on video, and I can better size up what they look like, what their breathing's like, and I can do a pretty good job with them. The other thing that's kind of funny is lacerations and sprains and strains. So I can't do an x-ray and I can't sew a laceration. But if you're a dad and your spouse is out working and you cut yourself doing something in the kitchen and you have two kids and one is sleeping upstairs, do you want to wake the kids to take them to the hospital? Or can I look at your laceration even though I can't fix it and teach you how to clean it out, how to bandage it up, and let you wait for tomorrow to get that laceration repaired or wait for your spouse to come home when someone else could watch the kids and then you could get it taken care of. So sometimes I do things that are not definitive care that are unbelievably useful to the patient who's calling me. Wow, that's amazing. You actually brought two things there. One was the CEO support, which that doesn't surprise me at all. Again, if the people have listened to these podcasts before, typically having things happen at a hospital that are innovative, getting the CEO behind it, 
is almost always critical to success, right? It has to be a priority initiative. Otherwise, there's just so much overwhelming obstacles, they can become insurmountable. So that's exciting. And then you alluded to the second thing there was surprising things that, you know, how do you apply this? Because again, and I've thought, I, I, I'm, this is fascinating to me because I've wondered about this. I can see the urgent care stuff, the sniffles, the stomach aches, the things that, you know, should they go in or not, those kinds of questions. But so in addition to the sort of urgent care stuff that you might've seen, what other, are there some other, another additional types of cases you think are perfect? When does this stuff make sense? I think it makes sense when the patient wants it to make sense. That's sort of the snarky answer, but but kind of true. We're doing nutritional counseling. We're doing diabetic counseling. We're doing pre-admission testing. We're doing post-op care. We're doing appointments with every provider known to mankind in every specialty. When I went to my cardiologist, what did the cardiologist say? They say, hey, I want to listen to the patient's heart. When you actually stop and think about it, if it's a stable patient coming for a routine appointment that doesn't have heart failure or valvular disease, let's just say they're a stable angina patient who has periodic chest pain from coronary disease, I ask the cardiologist, when's the last time you found a new murmur on an asymptomatic patient? Is it ever? You know, you listen to their heart because you're a cardiologist, but you don't actually find information that I consider actionable that changes what you're going to do. And once you realize that you're doing what you're doing because it's what you do, but not because it provides actionable information, and you could change your headset, you could let those things go. And so the challenge is really getting doctors to try it and to realize that they do telemedicine every single day. They do it with their family members. And if you love your family members, which presumably most of us do, you would have a higher (laughs) threshold for making sure the care is good. And you do that every day. So why wouldn't you do that for your patients? Actually, it brings another question. So there must have been, like cardiology, for example, I'm assuming some specialties have said, this will never work in my specialty. Yeah, I get it. It works for primary care, but not for mine. And so now it sounds like really every specialty you guys have, it's, it's working for them in some way or fashion? Yeah, we, we actually, our urologists do it. They, they do post-vasectomy care this way. Our breast surgeons do it. So you might think, oh my God, who's going to want to show their breast on video? Well, when we've done focus groups on this, it turns out some women do and some women don't. The women that do find it actually more comforting to be in their own home where they're not physically present with someone looking at them naked, where there's not a medical assistant and a nurse walking in the room and two med students standing there looking at them at the same time. They're perfectly happy to get undressed at home and let the one surgeon who needs to see them look at them by video. They find that a lot more comforting than the traditional in-person visit. And so not again what I would have guessed. I would have totally guessed the opposite. I would have guessed who wants to show their breast on video. Turns out there's many people who do. And that's why I think it's really important that, you know, I in my physician or administrative role don't decide what's best for any individual patient. They, they need to make the decisions. And we as providers in a health system need to support their decisions to render them the care the way they want it. Or frankly, in 15 years, they'll just go somewhere else. What the experience of, you know, looking at a post-surgical patient compared to doing it live, is there a a diminution in quality? I have no idea. Like how do the doctors come away feeling like they can, they can see just everything they would see if they were live or do they feel like there's, well, it's 80% as good. Yeah. Our data suggests we can resolve about 85% of things over the video. It's not a hundred percent. And then people say, oh, but it's not perfect. And I come back to how often does somebody go to the doctor's office where they're sent to the emergency department because they need more tests? How often do they have to go for an x-ray or a lab because they need more tests? Video is no different. It's the first starting point. 
And if you can get the information you need to make your decision and know that the patient needs you to do either A or B, then you're done. But if you need more information, you need to get more information, and some of that information might actually require an in-person visit. So it's not about, and you said this beautifully before, it's not telemedicine or not telemedicine. It's can telemedicine enhance everyday patient care. In your case, when you had a Sunday issue and there's no human dermatologist you could find, you know, to go to the office, you were able to call and see a dermatologist then you could still follow up with your regular dermatologist and get all the things done that you need to have done. I think when we look at telemedicine as part of the care delivery system rather than a separate care delivery system, we'll all be better off. Again, yeah, I feel like it's a part of the continuum of care. <laughs> it makes more sense uh, time-wise from the patient's point of view. You mentioned as well about the consumerism of healthcare. Again, people that have listened to this before know I'm, I'm big on that because people uh, just expect it now, right? They've got more skin in the game. They expect, why does this have to be so hard? Why Everything else in my life is so much easier. Why does this have to be hard? And the making things easy, we write about that too. How can we make things easy? So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the big elephant in the room, the one that everybody's going to object to before we even start, which is reimbursement. Tell us about your experience and what you know about your state versus other states. And I, I think there's a lot of fear about reimbursement, but I've, what's been your experience? Well, if podcasts existed when I was young, my mother would have taught me not to curse on podcasts. But, uh, <laughs> you know, re- reimbursement's horrible. It, it, it's, you you know, and I, this won't be the politically correct thing to say, but if, if you're a payer and you have a choice of paying or not paying, why would you pay until you're forced to pay? So payers are always going to drag their feet when there's something new. I, I think, and this is, you know, my personal opinion, that if I could deliver the same quality care, they should pay me no matter how I deliver that care, the same amount of money. If I can't deliver the same quality care, they shouldn't pay me for it. In the long run, we believe here that as we move to a more at-risk patient population and more value-based care, the value of telemedicine is going to grow. And the challenge is how to operationalize and grow out the programs when the reimbursement climate is horrible, but we expect the reimbursement climate to get more favorable. And, you know, it, it's a challenge. And you, But there are several areas where you could begin programs where reimbursement or the lack of reimbursement is less impactful. So you can begin programs in your bundled care patients. You can begin programs if you're a self-insured entity in your own employees. You could begin programs with post-op care. You could begin programs that comply with the HEDIS measures where you're trying to get pay-for-performance dollars. And even if you're not reimbursed for the single visit, if you're providing better care to patients and a better control of hemoglobin A1, C, you might end up with more value at the end of the day. So I, I think that the important part, and we go through this exercise every once in a while, is, is aligning the strategy that we're trying to achieve in the next year or two with the climate that's out there. We have done a lot of telemedicine visits that have not been reimbursed. We've done a lot of telemedicine visits that are not reimbursed. But we, we've also done a lot of telemedicine visits where we've just provided better patient care, and we're hopeful that some of that comes back to us in terms of downstream patient loyalty and the likelihood that they'll come back because we're the most convenient place. And part of that comes back to us because we've operationalized a program that as the financial landscape changes, we're really totally ready to launch. Absolutely. As things change and becomes more about outcomes and more about the whole case versus office visits, it can't make more sense, right? I mean, do you have any idea what the cost delivery time is for an inpatient uh, visit versus a telemedicine from the cost side of it? I mean, obviously the reimbursement side is a problem. What about on the cost side of it? Do you know? 
Well, so we've not, you know, gotten down to that level of detail. The telemedicine platforms all require some licensing fee, so it depends which one you use. It could go from really trivial to several hundred thousand or maybe a million dollars a year um, to, to license a platform. So that's, you know, real dollars in the licensing if you're not spreading it out over multiple entities or multiple physicians. So, you know, that's a bit problematic. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know how much does it cost for, you know, room 16A and the medical assistant and the table that's in there and the paper that I change between every patient and the gown that the patient gets in and cleaning all this stuff and the people at the center desk and how much less is it to do it by telemedicine, how much more efficient can the physicians be because the time of a telemedicine call is considerably shorter than the time of an in-person visit call. Some of the you know social niceties that one could argue build the physician-patient relationship are, are decreased um, in telemedicine. But on the other hand, it's more efficient, and many of the patients want that increased efficiency. So it's really hard to put the total wraparound numbers to it, but certainly if you don't have to build an office building and doctors could take calls from home or from a small area, there are economies of scale that over the long run are going to pay dividends. feels to me, too, I don't how much... Um... If I look at this, and this is really a fascinating topic, by the way, I'm having so much fun with this. Um, operationalizing this, uh, where, and I'm not sure where you guys are in the continuum. I would imagine a day where this is truly part of the continuum of care, and you know the doctors are taking the telemedicine visits when required, and then certainly there seems like there'd be a role for extenders here, PAs and NPs, um, uh, as part of it as well. Uh, you know, give me your thoughts on, you know, kind of where you guys are now and where you think it'll go operationally. Yeah, so we're doing lots of calls with NPs. We're doing some calls with nurses, some of our non-billable visits, just sort of triage calls. Take dermatology as an example. You call with a pigmented lesion, you know, it's a month and month and month wait to get in and see a dermatologist at most places. Wouldn't it be great to have a nurse who knows what's going on just look at the, the lesion and be able to at least say, looks pretty average or, oh, my God, this looks really ugly. I'm really worried this is melanoma. We better have you jump the line, right? That, that's a, a non-billable visit, but certainly great for patient care and saves a tremendous amount of money if you're self-insured or that's an at-risk patient if you could get to their melanoma four months earlier than waiting for that appointment. So, you know, we're looking at a lot of creative solutions in terms of the providers and the way we utilize the providers, and we've really empowered every department to say, What's going to work best for you to achieve your goals and your patient's goals to, to get them in? And we've gone to this sort of intake slash triage model in many of the services that have a long, long wait. And our time from appointment uh, or time from contact to appointment is actually considerably shorter for our telemedicine patients than our in-person visits. Going back to your example about the melanoma, that also might save their life. <laughs> that might save <laughs> their months. life. You know, four months earlier is a big deal. Complications, all kinds of problems that it could save. That's pretty amazing. You know, it's funny. We just were, I don't want to say the name, we were just hired by a um, very prestigious uh, university hospital academic. And they were telling me, it's funny, just before we actually were engaged, they were talking about penguins. And I thought this is a funny analogy that applies here, where they said, Stuart, you know, we're all like penguins in our world. And everybody's afraid to jump in because they're afraid you're going to be eaten by the shark. But eventually, a brave penguin jumps off the ice floe, and, and then all the other penguins follow. So I think that in this case, you guys feel like the, the brave penguin, right? You're jumping into this both feet first. 
I think it's going to have a huge impact. I think your session is going to be one of the most well-attended, very interesting, because I know there's a lot of people out there that are interested in this topic. When you talk to other doctors that are not a part of your program, are they curious about it? Or what's your experience just when you're talking to other people about this? Because I'm assuming most people want to pick your brain all the time. I get a bunch of emails that ask, hey, can we just chat for like 20 minutes? You add up to 5,000 hospitals in the, in, in, in the country and 20 minutes worth of chats and time gets tied up pretty fast. But yeah, everybody's kind of intrigued. Um, we, we are clearly out in front of this. To the best of my knowledge, and I could be off by one, I, I believe we are the only academic medical center in the country, maybe the only medical center, who is doing all of our telemedicine care with exclusively our own providers. Everybody else I know that has a large academic medical center, and, and those of us with programs, you know, share a lot, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that's not public and probably we're not supposed to share. Almost everybody else subcontracts out to a national provider network. So during the daytime, Monday through Friday, it's their own providers, but during at least some portion of the off hours, it's somebody who would look to be a physician who works for the institution and actually is credentialed in many cases at the institution but probably couldn't even tell you what state the institution is in. And so we've taken a, you know, a true ownership approach and said, if you call Jeff Connect because you're going to get a Jefferson physician, by golly, you're going to get a Jefferson physician. They're going to be the same doc in the on-demand program who works in the emergency department or the urgent care centers. They also work in telemedicine. If you call your cardiologist or pulmonologist or family doc, you get the same doc that sees you in the clinic. And so we've taken a different approach that way. We'll see if that pays dividends or not. It's certainly a more expensive approach. But, you know, we just think you should know what you're getting when you hit the button. So it's interesting watching other people go through this because they want to be part of this. But there are medical centers out there that advertise their telemedicine program. And nobody who will answer the phone is actually from that medical center. Tell me about uh, Jeff Connect a little bit. What the in terms of promoting it, and if you know consumers been excited about it, what what has been your experience there? I know you're not on the marketing team, but how how is it going, and how are you guys promoting it? So we got great brand recognition. Um, we did really well. We've promoted it every way you could ever imagine. Um, we have done mailers. We have done radio commercials. We've gotten lucky and had TV spots at time because we were really fortunate in a couple situations. One, when the Pope came to town and they closed down Center City, that the only way you could get medical care at the downtown medical centers was via telemedicine. So we ended up with news stories that weren't advertisements about this is your option while Center City is shut down. We've done emails, we've done refrigerator magnets, we've done postcards, we've actually had posters in subway cars, we've had them in the train stations, we've done everything in the world. Everybody knows what Jeff Connect is. We even won the app last week, we won for Best of Philly in apps. So, you know, pretty proud of all this stuff. That being said, adoption is still slow. People need to remember it when they get sick, and that's a challenge because you can't be in front of everybody all of the time. Philadelphia is certainly a competitive marketplace, so that's, I can see that uh, it's a marketer's dream, <laughs> right, <laughs> to, to have something good. It's about the product, right? It's not about the promotion. It's about the product, and that's at least for the early adopters. And again, I love this sort of stuff personally. Uh, it was fun to do my, you know, my little anecdotal test. In fact, I was wondering what I'm not. I've been healthy this last year. I haven't really had a need. And it's like, oh, okay, now I can think of why. But okay. for the, I think the early the early adopters will share. They'll talk about it. I, I predict explosive growth. I think the reimbursement side is going to improve because it has to. Again, it's kind of like you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. We want you as a. Um, I'm talking about the health just system where. We want to think about the patient. We want to think about the continuum of care. We want to think about getting them better versus visits. 
and then we smack you when you try to comply with that. <laughs> you you know what I mean? It's kind yeah, of, uh, I know what you mean. <laughs> it's like when you tell a dog to sit and then you smack him when he does. It's like, it's not fair. Wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Well, we've talked about a lot today. You've done a great job of being very concise. Is I have you know time for any other issues. Is there anything we missed? Uh, is there anything that's important? Because we've talked about a whole lot of a lot of things. Uh, what are the important other facets? If there's any other takeaways our listeners should have? Two points. One is what I call access versus geography, and, and the other is what I sort of call the established patient fallacy. So the access versus geography is some of the policy, you know, nationally from the federal government has focused in rural climate, you know, in rural areas and getting telemedicine reimbursed in rural areas. And I, I say this without any real data, and it may not be exactly true, but I'm pretty sure there's more people with access problems in downtown Philadelphia than some whole counties that meet the rural definition. And so I believe that we should be focusing on people who need access rather than the geography of where people live. And in fact, if you go look at the data, it turns out you get an appointment faster from multiple specialists if you live in a rural underserved area than if you live in downtown urban areas. You know, to me, I think our policy and our reimbursement from CMS and, and the federal government is misaligned with where we have people that have access challenges that telemedicine could help. And what I mean by the established patient fallacy or, or dilemma is that many of the payers will pay potentially, or many of the states will regulate, it should be reimbursed if it's an established patient-provider relationship. And that's on the premise that if you're my family physician and I call you on Friday night, I get your friend in your practice on Friday night, that they will know more about me than somebody else. But reality is, having been practicing for years, when you call the doctor that shares the practice, they're not home, they don't have the medical record, they don't know the patient, and they don't have a lot to really add besides transmitting information back. We actually, and this is a little self-centered, but other places as well, we have our ER doc on call who doesn't have an established relationship, but is sitting in front of the medical record 24-7-365. So when a patient calls me, I know everything that's in the medical record about the patient. I know what their meds are, I know what their allergies are, I know what their medical problems are, and I feel I'm better able to treat somebody than the family physician's friend who you just called while they're at dinner or the movie theater. And so I've tried to emphasize that really it's not about the established patient relationship the way it's defined. It really should be about care coordination, and we should reimburse the provider who's able to coordinate your care. Those are my sort of two ending comments that I always put at the end of every talk because I think they're critical points that need to inform policy so we could deliver the best care for the most patients. You know, I'm still trying to bang the drum to get doctors to email a patient back, right? If you ask patients, and we talk about this a lot in our seminars when we're speaking, you know, what are the two things patients often ask or want with their provider to be able to, you know, schedule appointments on time to their convenience and to be able to communicate? And what are the two things that typically the docs don't want to do is make them, let them schedule on time, let them communicate. So this is sort of like the whole next level, but in this way, you know, it's we're actually providing care, which is pretty amazing. This was terrific, as I expected. I was excited about this call, and 
I'm excited about all the interviews we do, but this one is just kind of where my head's at, and I think about these issues a lot, so it was particularly relevant to me, and as well as I'm sure our readers. I have to comment also, you mentioned that your friends or people call you out of the blue asking for your perspective. Well, now you have this podcast. You can point them to it. Judd, I really appreciate your time. Before I let you go, I want to say where it is and when it is. Your presentation is Monday, September 25th, 9.15 to 10.15 a.m. Again, Dr. Hollander, it has been uh, terrific talking to you. I appreciate your time and have a great shizmet. Uh, This is Stuart Gandalf. Thank you.